Welcome to This Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Dr. Michael Gervin. Michael, how are you? I'm feeling good. Thanks for having me on your show. Glad to have you here, and I'm very interested in your research. And for listeners who aren't familiar with you yet, if it's okay with you, I'm going to read from your bio. It's actually in the first person that I found it posted. Uh, so you're at UC Santa Barbara, and in your words, I'm an evolutionary anthropologist aiming to explain behavior and physiological systems as adaptive solutions to competing demands of limited resource allocation. I employ ethnographic field settings as laboratories for testing hypotheses about human variation, behavior, psychology, and physiology. And so there's two main broad interrelated areas. Biodemography of human health. This is what got me to you, was lifespan, longevity, and aging, and then transitions in social and economic behavior. So this stuff, to hold myself to one part of your research is going to be difficult, and, but I'll do it because there's some parts that's most interesting to me, and I think this podcast of sustainability. Now, also, I hope I say it right because it says Tsumani, but everyone seems to say Tsumani. You're the co-director of the Tsumani Life History and Health Project, and we're going to find out who they are. And you've conducted field work with three South American indigenous populations, the Aceh of Paraguay, the Tsumani of and Masatane, Mositan. Mositan. And now I heard in one of your conversations, are you from Philadelphia like I am? I am, yes. Are you from Philly? Did yeah. You know by... Yeah, Northeast Philadelphia. Oh, Northeast, because I went to Central. So there's the big Central Northeast game. Ah, well, so my family moved. I would have gone to Washington. That was the closest. But I did go to Lesh Elementary School, Baldy Middle School. <laughs> Those ring a bell to you. They don't, I actually, Central, I was Northwest Philly in Manary in Germantown, but in high school, my senior year, I dated a girl who was in Northeast, so she was all up there. Okay. And we only saw each other when we were at school, but, and I was just there over the weekend on a bike ride, actually. I biked from New York to there, wow. to Philly. Great. So glad to have a, a hometown, uh, oh, not, now I'm vegan. I have, I've not had a cheesesteak, a proper cheesesteak in a long, long time. Yeah, that's right. Unfortunately, I haven't been back. I'm hoping to get back this summer. It's been a while. Now, I want to ask a, a few things. One is about longevity. The big thing I want to ask about is longevity. Of You've researched, and I found a paper, and that led me to you, of how long people lived in historic, not prehistoric times, I guess, before agriculture, which we don't really have a handle on. We have some handle by people today who are not in the industrialized or over-industrialized world. And I'm surprised, I think a lot of people, including myself up until recently, thought people lived until 30 and that was old age. Now, but I think before getting into that, we should talk about the, these cultures that you've lived among and what led you to go there and study these cultures and what it's like there. And so as much as I want to get the answers to what led me to you, I think that background would be really, I would love to hear more. Can you share where you've lived, with whom you've lived, and how you got there, if that's not... If you haven't said that to too many podcasts. No, sure. Happy to do it. In some ways, you know where I'm coming from. A city boy from Philadelphia, where that's all I knew uh, was the urban jungle. We, we never traveled a whole lot when I was a kid. But, you know, I would read about our pasts and the way things used to be. And once I got really interested in just thinking about human origins, what are the universal aspects of our species? Why are we both kind of universally the same, but at the same time, our cultures are so different, our lifestyles are so different. What does it all mean? I'm trying to put it all together and just got really interested in thinking about what's the kind of primal way of living 
And, and so that takes you directly to foraging, to hunting and gathering and thinking about, wow, what would that have looked like? And knowing that, yeah, there's some of those groups still around, scattered around the world. But imagine what that might look like if you're a hunter-gatherer in a world where everyone else is hunter-gatherers. So like, I'm really excited by that. And the whole idea, yeah, sustainability, what your podcast is all about. How do people manage resources in their environment? How do people get by when there's no refrigerators, there's no banks, there's no savings accounts, there's no insurance? What are all the informal ways that people kind of come up with government and jails and all the kinds of institutions that we take for granted as like the, the achievements of modern civilization? Hunter-gatherers have versions of those things. And what might that look like? And that's what kind of took me to say, well, I don't just want to read about it. I want to go there. I want to be able to visit these kinds of populations. And so that's what kind of I did go. I mean, you can go without having to go to school for that. But I guess I went the easy, what I thought was an easier route, which was to do it from school. I actually went to Penn State as an undergraduate institution and actually was studying physics. So like a lot (laughs) way out there. But towards the end, that's when I really started getting interested in these kinds of things. And I think I found the the most kind of otherworldly place to go to school within the U.S., at least, uh, which was in New Mexico. (laughs) So being, again, from the city, I mean, New Mexico was just a wild place, uh, really, really nice, very different. And it just happened to have a program, some of the best people in the world that study hunter-gatherers and that are interested in these broader kind of evolutionary approaches, recognizing that humans are just another animal. We might be a peculiar animal that differs in lots of interesting ways from other animals, but we're all connected. And so applying the same kind of evolutionary lens that you might use if you're studying lions or meerkats to studying humans and applying that into the jungle, the deserts, the the savannas of the world. And so that's what took me to Paraguay which is my first glimpse of kind of actually living amongst hunter-gatherers. And that was the Aceh. And that was just... Before you get into that, can I ask you a few questions? Yeah. Yes. I don't want to stop you, but did you know that you were going to end up living there? Did you know that you would be face-to-face with them? Is that what drew you in? Because to me, it's just utterly fascinating. Like up until recently, if I said to someone, another culture than mine, I'd probably mean France or Japan. But now I tend to think of there's like one big culture that's dominating the world. And I think of, I mean, once I started learning about the San and the Hads and, and places, people like that, the idea of actually going and seeing them is, I don't want to now because I don't want to infect them with, I don't mean like a pandemic, but I don't want to be a missionary. I don't want to come in and bring oil and cornmeal that's going to change their diets and stuff like that. Did you know what you were getting into? Was that part of the appeal? Because it sounds super exciting as well. Yeah, well... So, right. So I visited and lived among hunter-gatherers before I ever went to anywhere in Europe. (laughs) I figured Europe's not going anywhere. It'll be around and it's not going to be that different. The differences with like American or Canadian culture are going to be, you know, minuscule in comparison. So I've got plenty of time for that. So, yes, I went kind of traipsing around South America before, before that. But I didn't know... I guess I didn't really know much of anything (laughs) other than like I knew what I was going to do then and there. And I didn't know how it was going to go. I didn't even have much. I'm not like a champion camper. 
or anything like that. And, you know, I, I came to realize that stuff didn't matter a whole lot. You, you can learn that stuff pretty easily. The things that really mattered really was just, can you just sit there and absorb conversations and be around other people without having something you need to do and get done and with an agenda? And can you just enjoy and absorb everything around you in a way that well, I guess we're just not very much used to, I think, when we're kind of always on the go. And so I actually, I fell in love with it. And I didn't really realize at the time, like, oh, this is going to be my like a career. I was one of those fortunate folks that I think I just was doing what I loved. And it turned out there weren't a whole lot of other people doing that. And so I was able to kind of turn that into a career. But no, I'd be lying if I said I knew that was going to be a trajectory for me kind of long term. Well, thank you for sharing that. And so you're talking about the Ache. Yeah, yeah. The Ache experience was just amazing. And then no group of hunter-gatherers are like the naive way I was thinking about them way back when. I mean, every group has been, even the, the San, right? I mean, if you went to the San a hundred years before, you know, the first anthropologists were studying them like in the 50s and 60s, they were involved in the ivory trade. Life was very different. They were interacting with farmers. And so life is always in a state of flux. And many of the groups that are practicing hunting and gathering full time were actually interacting with their neighbors and doing lots of different things. And so just being able to kind of experience that lifestyle of hunting and gathering, it didn't matter so much the details of, but did you drink a Coca-Cola in the morning? It, there's certain aspects of the lifestyle of hunting and gathering that I think are universal, despite groups becoming increasingly more enmeshed in the kind of global network. There's a huge variety. I'm in the middle of reading The Dawn of Everything. I don't know if you've read it or have you? I haven't read it, but I've read excerpts of it and heard about it. David Graeber and yeah. Yeah. And what I've heard is that there's much greater variety than we thought of cultures before agriculture, of the transition to yeah. agriculture of since then. And I think I certainly would have thought there was a certain way people lived before agriculture, and then there's a revolution, and then there was agriculture. And for some reason, some people didn't get it, and we've had to civilize them. And now I don't feel that way anymore. Is that right about how great the diversity of cultures has been in all periods? Yeah, I think so. I mean, even even when we think about hunters and gatherers, right, as if because of the gods must be crazy and because of like a lot of work that was done with different San groups. And then more recently with the Hads, we tend to have like a, there was a Kung centered view of hunter gatherers that all hunter gatherers were like the Kung. And then, Oh no, no, they're all like the Ache or no, they're all like the Hadza. And no, there's a huge amount of variation. The very fact that some of the hunter gatherers living in the best areas, like coastal areas and prime fertile lands, they were either wiped out or pushed out first. And so, but what we know from a lot of those hunter-gatherers is they looked a little bit more like farmers. They were more hierarchical. They had notions of property. Some groups had slaves and lots of warfare. And so they weren't the kind of very more peaceful, egalitarian kinds of hunter-gatherers that I think fuel more the, the kind of popular imagination. So there's the whole spectrum from like that Rousseauian life is bliss and hunter-gatherers are kind of friendly, egalitarian, vegetarian and all that stuff to 
more Hobbesian <laughs> kind of brutality, but or being carnivores and all that kind of stuff. And the reality, I just think, is that much more interesting, right? It, you know, hunter-gatherers are people. And what's really interesting about hunter-gatherers, you know, I teach classes on this, is that there's what hunter-gatherers actually, who they are and what they actually do. And then there's the lens in which we see them and view them. And almost any kind of pop story about any trait in humans, naturally someone says, well, you know, in hunter-gatherers, it could be like talking about sexual jealousy or something like that. Well, let's look at what hunter-gatherers do. And so we're always turning to hunter-gatherers, whether we like it or not. And I think we just need to be able to understand hunter-gatherers for who they are and what they do, uh, what they think, what they believe, rather than our interpretations of that and what we want to see. And even in the world of like thinking about lifespan and health and all that stuff, it's the same thing. Someone will be like, what's the secret? Why do the Chimane don't have any heart disease? And it's like, I always have to remind people, yeah, the Chimane don't have heart disease, but they still die at higher rates at every age of their life, right? So there are certain lessons to be learned, but I'm just as interested, if not more, about what lessons Chimane have to learn from other populations and how do we think about the Chimane's future rather than kind of using the Chimane to just think about ourselves. So where should we go next? Because I want to hear the research on longevity. And I also want to hear about their interaction with other cultures. And I also want to hear what it was like for you to live with them. Because I'm guessing that it must have, am I right, that it affected you a fair amount? Oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> How often do you go back? How long have you lived there? Do you speak the language? Is it? Uh, are you an outsider or do they welcome you in? Yeah. So... The Chimane situation was different than the, so the Ache was a much smaller population and I was working in one area. So I got to know people pretty well. And then when I sw when I started working in Bolivia with the Chimane, I got to know people pretty well. But the, one of the attractions of the Chimane was that there are a lot more of them. So there are about, well, currently I estimate there's probably about 17,000 Chimane living in almost 100 villages. And so it's really hard to know 17,000 people really well. And so in some ways, by kind of spreading myself thinner over more villages and populations, I, I feel like I don't know people as well as maybe I did initially with the Ache. But yeah, I've spent a lot of time there. I did learn the language, not super fluently, but certainly conversationally. Quickly, you know, enough to joke around with people, which is always good. And enough, one of the things I was doing initially was trying to figure out people's ages. And so a lot of what I do down there is, is studying aging and health and things like that. And so if you want to know what all that looks like as a function of age, you kind of need to know people's age. <laughs> and so in the process... don't keep track. Yeah. And so in the process of trying to figure out people's ages, I was doing lots of interviews about families and genealogies, kinship, marriage, all your kids and all your parents and grandparents. So what was really cool was that I got to know everybody and how everyone was related. And so much so that by the time I would visit villages I'd never been to, I already knew people and I knew how they were related to other people. And that freaked people out. <laughs> it's like, who is this guy? Why does he already know who our families are? I always prided myself as I'm pretty good with faces. I might not remember your name, but I know if I've seen you before. And so I could also tell just by knowing, like, you look a lot like your sister and your sister's in that village. And let me tell you how she's doing. And this is someone who hasn't seen their sister in like 
you know, couple years. So that was a lot of fun for sure. And so I first went in 1999. This was shortly after I was working with the Ache. And then I made a few visits to kind of start this bigger project. And then since then, and then I spent a whole year or 13 months or so in 2002 to 2003. And since then, I've been going to back a few times every year. Now, the pandemic did kind of put a bit of a dent in things. So I haven't uh, yet been back in a couple of years. But that being said, the technology has also gotten better. So I have an office in the, the kind of town closest to the jungle where we work. And so we're always in contact with them every day. And with WhatsApp, if the team is in a, like maybe a third of the villages, the, there's a place in the village you can get some reception. So every day I'm getting pictures and texts and information, not just from like the town, but from the village. Even like, here's a patient we have right now in some of the more remote areas. And so that's kind of a game changer, like changer in the last five years. Kind of gives armchair anthropology a new name where you're literally down there. And even though you're not physically there. Does that mean that the culture is going to, I imagine it's going to eat, eat away at the culture from the edges and they're going to adopt the stuff that's really, addic well, let's just say that the appealing in some way. Do you see that happening? Yeah, that's a big can of worms. I mean, people are changing everywhere and there's, it's hard to, it's interesting. I, I run into missionaries a lot and I think probably the default anthropologists, maybe they put themselves on some moral high ground. And I think what's really eye-opening in comparison to missionaries who are like literally trying to change beliefs, change ideology, convert people. But from a lot of local people's perspective, they don't actually differentiate between missionaries and anthropologists. They're both outside interests. What do they want? What are they going to do for us? What's it going to cost? And I think that's kind of an eye-opening experience. And, you know, one of the first things running into missionaries, they said, yeah, we don't really like anthropologists because they try to keep people primitive. They try to keep, they deny people, maybe they deny people medicines or deny people certain things that might improve their life because of this idea that, you know, like a Star Trek prime directive, thou shalt not interfere. And they're people, right? And so that's not what, I mean, I don't know who they were referring to specifically, but that's certainly not what we've done. Even from like, Day one, we've tried where we can help when it comes to people's health or other kinds of things. We do try to help. And it's a complicated issue, right? Where if I'm not there, it's not like I'm the one introducing all these things, right? I'm hardly like an influential force in that area. So people are going to get exposed to lots of different things in many different ways from many different people. And so if, but if I am there, maybe I can help a little bit with how that happens, how that occurs and to give people some choices and maybe to promote some understanding or expectations of what can happen. So just to give you one example, some of the things that we've been doing, studying down there, our interests here in the West, right? The kinds of things that might kill you or me, like heart disease or diabetes, those kinds of diseases are very rare in those kinds of settings. And so it might seem a little bit odd. Why study something that doesn't really exist? At least odd from the 
Shimane's perspective, right? But then trying to un- explain, well, there's groups that are living just like you or were living just like you. And very quickly, their lifestyles changed, what they ate changed. And now look at their health. And so I'm explaining even that the Native Americans in North America, the rapid changes in cardiovascular health and diabetes and other kinds of chronic diseases of aging, how that can sneak up on you. And so trying to present that as not to scare people, but as a kind of recognition, the double-edged sword that with increasing access, there's bad that comes with the good. And so helping, trying to help people or work with people to at least have an understanding to selectively what might be good. Who, who doesn't want to say yes to like an immunization against yellow fever that might kill people? But at the same time, does that mean you want a hundred kilogram bag of sugar being delivered to your village? And so, yeah, that's the kind of delicate balance that trying to navigate. So I don't lose sleep over like, oh, am I harming these kinds of societies? Because, well, I don't think we are. I think the harm that's going to happen or that can happen, there's way more nefarious forces at play than anything I think in kind of an outsider visitor can have. And, you know, sometimes these things, we're dealing with this with COVID. Well, I don't know where you want to go. I can keep talking for, for hours, but let's just say that people, Chimani, were not very friendly to the vaccines. And that was a complicated issue. And from the Chimane logic, it kind of made sense a little bit. COVID spread rapidly throughout the Chimane area. We estimate about three quarters of people got COVID. But as far as we can tell, only one person died from COVID. So very low rates of death, no hospitalizations. And so to the Chimane, that's not to say it was like super easy or mild. There were some cases that left people in bed that seemed like a really bad sickness for 10 days or so, but it didn't require hospitalization and they didn't die from it. And so for them and their choice and fears about vaccines and needles and things like that, it made sense to them that it was an unnecessary risk. And so. And can you share, I heard you talk about this on another podcast. Mm. One got it. What was the expected number? Oh, yeah. So we did do a model and simulation and we expected, so yeah, the Chimani have a very young age structure. Half the population is under the age of 15. So given the way that COVID risk of dying is so heavily age dependent, just the very fact that the Chimane population is so young means you're not going to get that many deaths. But we estimated there should have been maybe like anywhere between like 25 to like 45 deaths or so. And we had one. So any which way you shake it, it was far fewer than you would expect just based on age alone. Now, when you talk about how we affect them, I really want to ask about like type 2 diabetes, but I'm going to jump to and things like that. Yeah. Because I know people, we're not going to get into it now if it's okay with you, although as much as I'd like to, but you did CT scans of people and learned a lot about them. And we're going to leave that for another episode. But you looked into how long people expected to live. And here's what someone said to me talking about the hot sauce that, if you make it past 15, or maybe it was you said it somewhere, but I heard there's a lot of infant mortality, but if you make it past 15, then the, I think it would be the modal, some average age would be like 60, 70 years old, 
maybe even the high 70s. And if that's the case, that's very different than what I would have expected because when we think of like medieval serfs dying at 30, we're really scared of that. So what's your research in this area? Yeah, so I think that was me. <laughs> but yeah, you're right. And some of it is just, it's sort of like a mathematical or statistical misunderstanding, right? So when we think of life expectancy, that's just an average. And so at birth, a life expectancy of 30 years, that does mean on average, people live 30 years. But every population with a life expectancy of 30 is going to have older people living in it. And why is that? Well, because the highest rate of dying is in the first year of life. So just the Ache, for example, have a life expectancy of birth in the low 30s, maybe 15% might not make it into that first year. That's really, really high chance of dying. And it actually turns out that maybe less than just under half don't make it to age 15. So that alone is taking is why the average life expectancy at birth is so low. But what you can do is like, okay, if you make it to age 15, how long might you expect to live? And that's where the numbers start looking a bit different. So if you make it to age 15, there's a good chance that you can live well past age 40, 50, even into your 60s. Uh, if you're lucky enough to make it to age 40, you're going to live about an uh, additional two decades or so. So you can make it to age 60. And so that means, like I said, every population with low life expectancies, even in the 20s and 30s, is going to have some old people, but it's not going to have that many old people. This is like a, so I'm actually writing a book right now on all of this. And I was thinking about this when you asked me to be on your podcast. I was like, oh, it's this for only times but I'm too slow and the book's not ready yet. But I go through over this in detail through the ages and what we know and what we don't know. And let's just say we don't know a whole lot about our past. But what we do know is that pretty much in every population that's ever existed, there are older people around. Now, it just varies, though, how many there are. And what really varies the most and this is, I think, the big difference, what you can say between groups of like hunter-gatherers and then how we're living now, is many more of us are likely to live to those later years. So it's not that when we go from a life expectancy of 30 to say, well, let's just go in the U.S. 150 years ago, the life expectancy of birth was like in the low 40s in the U.S. Right now, it's in the late 70s. But if you go back, it wasn't that there was no one, everyone wasn't dropping dead at age 40, right? There were older people, there just weren't that many. But now when you compare 1850 in the U.S. and now, so many more people are likely to make it to those later ages. We've basically eliminated or greatly reduced all the early life mortality, but we're still hitting at that wall. We've pushed against that wall a little bit. So I'm not going to say that lifespan itself hasn't really changed a lot. There were, how many centenarians were there 150 years ago? Very few compared to now, but there were some. But, you know, the world population is also much, much, much bigger now. So just as a statistical fluke, you're going to get the Jean Calment, who lived 100, over 122 years of age, that you probably weren't going to observe 
when there was only a half billion people who had lived up till then. So yeah, that that's kind of the short of it. That don't be swayed by the life expectancy numbers being so low that we've always had people living at later ages. And even in those populations, this brings it back to when you're talking about the mode. When you look at populations with life expectancies in the low 30s, if you say, all right, let's just look at the district, what are the ages that people die at? And so, yeah, the big bulk of that is in early life. But if you look in adulthood, you tend to see this kind of mountain. And the peak of that mountain is around seven decades. It's around 70 years. But it's not a super steep mountain to climb. In other words, people are still dying in their 40s and their 50s and their 60s. And that changes over time. So more, more recently, that mountain is very steep, right? Very few people die. But then as you reach those later years, then many more people die and then you fall off the mountain again. But that mountain itself has shifted. Instead of it being 70 years, it's now you know 80 or even as high as 90 years in like Sweden, closer to 90. So I'm hearing, one of the things I'm taking away is that what's causing it to grow is a big decrease in infant mortality. And is that coming from modern medicine? Is that coming from, is it coming from washing hands or nutrition or all of the above? Many, many, many things? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I mean, it's coming from like lots of ages, right? In fact, maybe even infant mortality, not as much as child mortality. So after weaning, because Babies are protected. In pretty much all hunter-gatherer groups, they're breastfed on demand. When the birth spacing matters, if the next kid comes along a little bit too soon, that can be fatal for both the baby that already was born and then the one that's about to come. But what matters is as you transition to weaning, and now as you're eating food, you're eating food that is being prepared in different ways. You're being exposed to water maybe that is not that clean and food that maybe processed or partially cooked. So there's a, uh, what you often see is like a little increase in mortality shortly after weaning with those kinds of exposures, right? Your immune system is still developing. You're still young enough, but now you're getting like the onslaught of all the bacteria and viral kinds of infections. What's the culture like? Do they treat someone that's less than one years old, not yet as a person? I, I've heard something and maybe not just the Tsumani, but everywhere, at different places. Do we know this? Yeah, so this is definitely true. This was true for the Tsumani, and it's true for a lot of other groups, too, that names are not often not given for babies. And sometimes it can take a, a couple of years before a baby has a name. So when you're, when you're doing censuses, <laughs> we have like hundreds of babies with the name baby before we figure out who they are. I've always interpreted that as sort of, you know, once you name someone, you are humanizing them in a way, in a way that if you lose that baby, is it that much more painful to bear? It's almost every woman has lost a child that I've interviewed, you know, hundreds of women about every birth they've ever had, even miscarriages. And the average so if a Chimane woman lives throughout all of her reproductive years, she has about nine kids, nine births. And on average, maybe like three of those won't make it to say age uh, 15. And that's let alone thinking about miscarriages. And, and that's every woman. 
So then if you think about a woman and her sister and her mother and, and the combined loss is quite great. And so I always interpret it as what just one kind of cultural way of trying to minimize the impact of that bereavement by just not quite putting a name yet on that baby. Is there less bereavement if there's that much early death or is each one as painful as it would be for here? Or can you not get a feel of that? Yeah, you know, I would say my short term or after not being there very long, I kind of got a sense like that these things were not, it's just when it's all around you, you have to sort of get used to it in a way or else how do you, how do you ever function in daily life? I mean, would you just be curled up in a ball, miserable all the time? And so I kind of thought that maybe it wasn't bothering people as much. And that's not really the case. I have been, seen people suffer and be very depressed about, about loss. But at the same time, there are these cultural means of pushing people out of a funk, practically living in the present, like not dwelling on certain things that you can't change. In fact, both the Yache and the Chimane have these sayings of, what that roughly translates like leave it be like move on and so yeah i think that's a kind of practical kind of mindset and also there's other opportunities you can't afford to suffer about one child because you have lots of other children to be worrying about and there's also many other opportunities i do kind of wonder in our society where you only have one child maybe two but we put all of our eggs in one basket and so maybe it does seem that much more painful when things don't work out and a child gets sick and worst thing in the world, a child dies when that's our only child that we have. So it's an odd thing to think about. I, I do think that, yes, Chimani parents, like parents everywhere, suffer over the loss of all their children, but they kind of run through it in a way, in a way that they don't let themselves succumb to paralyzing trauma and things like mis. I know here miscarriage is very painful and certainly I would never try to minimize it. But I've talked with Jumani women that like there's groups of women that get together who've had miscarriages and they're these you know, little angels that never were able to see the world. And they're like, they don't understand that because that's just such a fact of life that if they were losing lots of sleep over a miscarriage, how would they ever function when they you know, lost a four-year-old or a three-year-old or something like that? And so, yeah, I just think it's a certain level of kind of practicality more than anything else. But yeah, I do think, you know, a naive kind of perspective would be like, well, they're not really suffering. They just have too many kids, you know, and that's not it at all. Chimani love kids. Kids are everything. Family is everything. Uh, there's nothing more important than family. That's the source of wealth. Chimani looked at me forever as being poor because I didn't have any kids. I was an old man at like 30 <laughs> with no kids. Like, well, first of all, what's wrong with you? <laughs> right? Do you not know how it works? Like, do we need to explain <laughs> it to you? Draw it in the sand? Yeah. So, yeah, that's a very different mindset. Yeah, now I want to get into that of, oh, actually, how much of what you're saying was the Tsumani or non-industrial people in general? 
Yeah, well, I can speak most obviously about, about the, that was all about the Chimane specifically, but I do think there's a lot of shared similarities. The thing about not naming infants, that's common in a lot of groups. But I also think some elements of what I'm saying is probably more generalizable to, to other non-industrial groups with high fertility and experiencing high mortality. Yeah. What's it like living there? Okay, so do they look at you as like some clumsy oaf who doesn't know how to like hunt and gather? Or do they look at us or do they look at the outside world and say, we reject that? Do they look at the outside world and say, we wish we could do it? Do they, any read there? Yeah, well, there's a mix of things. First of all, yes, I am a clumsy oaf. And certainly being, an, it helped being coming being a little bit self-deprecating. And if you take yourself too seriously, you should never go live and visit hunter-gatherers. And even people with, that are way more experienced than me when it comes to like camping and survival and all that stuff can be easily humbled by something even as mundane as like how you use a knife. Never cut towards yourself, right? Like Chimani cut towards themselves all the time and they can stop it perfectly right on their hand and not cut themselves. Except when they do cut themselves. <laughs> yeah, so... Um, sorry, what was the question again? Do they... Oh, uh, Do they stay as they do because they... I mean, I grew up thinking that cultures that are... They're, they're backward. We just haven't civilized them yet. But really... Oh, right. Really what I grew up learning was they're so stupid. We have to civilize them so that they can see how great we are. And... But now, it's certainly dawn of everything and James Sussman stuff. It's like they look at us and my impression is that, oh, yeah, the dawn of everything said that in colonial times in the now United States, that sometimes a European or a colonist would be caught stuck living with the Native Americans for a while. And sometimes a Native American would go to Europe or live with the colonists for a while. And apparently, and, and maybe the numbers here, that rarely would a Native American want to stay in European culture and often, if they were stuck there for long enough, yeah. and if a colonist or a European were stuck with Native Americans, they're like, we like it this way. We don't want to go back, which would right. imply my takeaway is that you can have a culture that wins by having more guns, for example, but actually people in it are less happy. Right. Yeah. And less healthy as well. Well, you know, I guess it just take, it really depends on the person, right? I know plenty of people that would be completely miserable if they had to live in Chimani village for their no hot water, right? Or bathing in the river and you don't know what's going to bite you, and let alone, you know, the snakes and other dangers, or even just thinking socially. Maybe you're a quiet person and you like your private time where, you know, undisturbed peace where you can sit and read a book, for example, and listen to music. Whereas in Chimane life and Nache, you know, everything is so incredibly social that if you were doing something like that, people might think you're depressed. So why, you know, is Josh wanting to be by himself? And what's in that book that he can't get from us? And so I think it could be it could be really hard for some people. Maybe they want to visit or have a vacation or experience it to live that way. It could be very difficult. But there might be people out there who that is really appealing to them. And so it would be a good fit. And and I think it's kind of similar with the Chimane. There's young kid, teenagers now who are looking at the shiny bling of the city, of the town. They're 
the the loud music of the discotecas, the clubs, all the appealing things that might be available in the market, fried foods, you name it. Maybe that life kind of seems appealing. People have nice clothes and all that. And so there are people that I think are attracted to that and they're not seeing the harms of civilization so much. Even when we talk about things like, yeah, but look, they're sick in other ways. Well, how do you do the calculus? We might have something like Alzheimer's, but we have to live until 80 or so in order to really experience that. And so some of those diseases we have are kind of diseases of luxury, right? That we only experience them because of how long we're living and the sort of rich conditions under which we live. Maybe that's a better way to go than suffering through infection and starvation and things like that. So, yeah, I don't know if that answered your question. I don't think that what I've experienced is things look really appealing on the other side and people get attracted to the newness. That And there's a lot of practical things, too. Even some uncontacted hunter-gatherers that have never had peaceful contact with other groups have raided logging camps and they steal machetes, they steal iron axes, because those things are immensely useful. It's many times more efficient to cut down a tree and make a field if you have stone, uh, I'm sorry, if you have metal axes and metal machetes than if you're working with stone axes. And so there's many real immediate practical benefits to some aspects of modernization that are really appealing. And, And sometimes people need to figure out what works for them and what doesn't work for them. I've seen Chimane, it's not that everyone is like moving towards the towns. Uh, I've seen folks that say, you know what? Screw it. I'm going further back into the woods and they're moving to live more remotely. And even Chimane that live in the villages near town, if you say who has the good life, they're not saying the Chimane that are living close to town or even the people in town. They're saying the Chimane who live remotely who have all the abundant fish and all the meat and they're not having conflicts with neighbors and things like that. So there's, a, I think there's a, a lot of confusion and trying to figure things out. There's still that appeal for the traditional life at the same time that there's this sort of sense of we're being drawn in, but it's not forceful. There's no one forcing folks to like modernize in a sense, but there's just really appealing aspects to some of the things that market life has to offer. How about things like, you mentioned conflicts. What are things like conflict resolution or government or cultural things like singing, making art, starting with the government stuff? Do they have groups that get together and resolve conflict and figure out what we're like, are we going to do cultural projects together or how does it work? Yeah, well, that's... Are they all participatory? Yeah, well, that's interesting. And that's where things definitely do vary. So the Chimani in particular, traditionally, there weren't even like these formal villages. They were were just like clusters of families, extended families that might live in a place. And there's another cluster of families that live over here and over there. Then at some point, it's like, well, Europeans come and say, who's your chief? And I'm like, what? <laughs> we don't have a leader. Okay, you're a leader. But certainly people have more say. Certain elders would have more say. Shamans would have a lot more say and would be kind of informal leaders. But now you had this sort of system of like actual 
named leaders in villages. But in the Chimane context and throughout lots of Amazonia, these chiefs don't have a whole lot of sway. They're farming and hunting and fishing just like everybody else. They're not getting a salary. But they're the ones that call meetings together. They might get people together and be like, you know what? Let's clear out this field. We're going to put a school here. We're going to let's try to clear out this area and make a soccer field. So they do try to organize communal labor. And yeah, there will be like, okay, tomorrow morning, everyone show up. We're going to have a big pot of chicha, which is like the local brew, fermented manioc or corn. And so, yeah, to organize people to get things done. But I would say the Chimane don't have a rich, long-standing history of organizing together for like really important things, like the same way that people in the highlands do, that were very hierarchical, very used to kind of organizing work parties and things like that. So even when we have community meetings, every time our team shows up, to a village, we have community meetings. And we've announced beforehand that we're coming on the radio because people do have, you know, some access to a radio. And so people know we're coming. But until like the minute of the actual meeting, you have no idea who's going to show, if anyone's going to show. It's very last minute. People are always kind of voting with their feet. Something's always coming up. People don't have watches. Even if they do have watches, again, the sense of time is very different. So yeah, that kind of organizing is can be complicated. And so that's where I think cultures are not static. They need to kind of adapt in some ways to the changing demands. And oftentimes what happens is there's some outside conflict or outside enemy, right? So it could be that there's loggers coming in. Then you get people to organize and stop what they're doing and realize that they need to work together. And this happens a lot, too. So the thing about Bolivia, which is an interesting, is it's very heavily indigenous. There's more indigenous languages in Bolivia than probably most places. Most people in the population identify to some extent as indigenous. And so there's this kind of conflict between like formal state law and respecting kind of local indigenous law. And so where the, the rubber meets the road is what happens if someone murders somebody? within like indigenous territory, who's responsible? Most people, you don't have a phone to even call the police, much less there, you almost have to pay the police to get involved and to do anything. And so a lot of times people take justice into their own hands. And so you've got community justice. And case not too long ago that of someone who was murdered, And this person who was murdered was themselves accused of serial murder. And, well, there was some drama over, talk about modern technology. Chimane person actually filmed this murder. And then somehow, I don't know what they were thinking, it got posted online. (laughs) And so at that point, you know, the local authorities couldn't ignore this. It was brought to their attention and there was the Chimani government was consulted. What are we going to do? And part of the logic of what it was a really interesting case, because part of the logic was this person who had murdered before, I guess, was in jail at one point, but nothing really happened. They, they escaped and then they went back to the Chimani territory and they were accused of having murdered somebody else. 
And so a bunch of villages got together, had meetings and kind of decided community justice wise, we need to take care of this ourselves. And so it was kind of an approved situation across many individuals. But when the police got involved, it's like they, there wasn't guns involved, but it was like throwing the person who pulled the trigger into jail. But at the same time, they were just sort of executing what had been agreed upon from multiple villages. So that person did go to jail, but eventually they did get let out, realizing that, again, local community justice here is prevailing over <laughs> state rules about murder and circumstances and, and things like that. And that's where there was a clear situation where the Chimani themselves, like, let's deal with it our own way. No, this is now that it's a changing landscape, murder, maybe we do need to consult with outside authorities and bring others involved. And so, but you can see how it worked out. People didn't really know what to do and it was a bit inefficient and it all kind of worked out in the end, I guess. But again, I think the Chimani are still in the situation where what do they take care of themselves versus what do they rely on others? And I think to the extent possible, they would rather take care of things themselves, right? It's a lot easier than trying to get the outsiders involved, especially if they have different rules about things. They once things are out of your hands, you might not have much control over what happens. And so, yeah, it's a big kind of situation. And Yeah, I can't tell if it's more fascinating or predictable yeah. or just it's, uh, but it's what's happening. Yeah. And I presume that these are happening. What's happening there is happening in alternative versions all over cultures like this. Yeah. And I think going back, I think to the bigger point, I think you were asking about the Chimane's level of social organization and their norms about meeting and stuff like that is sort of, it works in many circumstances given their traditional life. But now when it comes to things like petitioning for schools, wanting a health clinic, wanting governments, maybe if you want a road that's going to be cleared through, you want to kick loggers out, all these kinds of big things where you need state intervention, that's where the local form of organization doesn't really work very effectively and new norms about how to come together you know, need to be created. There's a Chimane government, but that's just like a half dozen people representing 17,000 people. It's hard to have them be very effective. They don't have a big standing budget or armies or things like that. So this is the situation, not just the Chimane, but lots of groups are in where they need to kind of, uh, they're faced with the situation that they need to come up with new ways of organizing, coordinating, cooperating in order to deal with these kind of new types of risks and new types of amenities like healthcare and schools and things like that. Is this why they're the ones that go further up and that's why they're considered living a better life because they have plenty of fish, they have plenty of game, they have plenty of plants to eat and... I'm reading part of this as encroachment of something that they didn't ask for and now they have to deal with. Would they be just as well, would they be just as happy not to have had these things in the first place to have to deal with? I think so. And there is a little bit of that where you recognize some of it, I think, is like wishful longing. Do they really want it? Like, could you pay people to go and go move back to further into the bush if that's what they really want? Maybe it's like wishful thinking, wishful longing. And certainly people do travel. Like, you have family all around. So maybe you do take two months and you go into 
deeper upriver and where you're doing, you know, lots more great fishing. And then you come back to your village. So it's not that people live in one place and they're there year round. So I think there are certain ways that people still navigate both desire to have the good life traditionally, and then yet also to feel that you somehow need to be connected now more than you did in the past, right? Like somehow knowing that the hospital is just three hours away instead of three days away, maybe gives some security. And so that's the life you choose to lead where you have some of that access. And I think, and these are the things that are changing now too. I mean, when I first started, maybe half the Chimani villages didn't have schools. Now most villages have schools and their teachers are, so also when I first started, all of the teachers were Chimani. They spoke some Spanish, but varied. Some Spanish was better than others, but they were all trained by missionaries. So they were kind of like these missionary, half missionary, half teachers. They weren't really part of the larger Bolivian educational system. So they were teaching all in Chiman language, not so much Spanish. Whereas now, as they're part of the educational system, there's a lot more teachers that are Bolivian nationals. They're not Chimane. So they teach in Spanish from day one. Uh, and so the level of education is shifting. People's literacy and just understanding of Spanish is changing a lot. And that's so we're seeing the very beginnings, I think, or continuation of more rapid changes that are going to come. But it's all relative. So when I say that the Chimani are rapidly changing, even the villages that are just one hour away from the nearest town, it's still very rural. Everyone has a farm. They're still going out fishing when they can, and they're still hunting occasionally. No one, except for like a handful of people working in town, like in the government and such, they're not working desk jobs. They're not, even the wage labor requires physical activity, right? Some of the logging or working as scouts or looking at trees and things like that. And so it's still a fairly agrarian kind of lifestyle, even in the most acculturated settings. What's driving me at the, besides my own curiosity, because this, I can't imagine anyone not finding this fascinating. When I talk to people about living more sustainably, I think. There's a deep down belief that a lot of people have that says that a thousand years ago in our cultural ancestors in Europe, the, the serfs were living in mud and diseased and just working nonstop, 30 years old age. And whatever pollution we have now, we certainly don't want to revert to that. And if we go farther back to the Stone Age, then people were, the reason we put on fat so fast is that we never knew where our ancestors never knew where our next meal would come from. And so we had to store that no matter what. And we generally think, I think there's a, a general belief that I certainly felt, although I never said it out loud, that we are getting better and that we do not want to revert back to that. And so if there's pollution now, we definitely don't want to, we have to increase, say, wind and solar, some alternative before we decrease fossil fuels, what well, causes all the most pollution, because we can't revert back. But if that's not the case, if people don't, like from what I was reading in Dawn of Everything, where if, when people had the choice, they prefer living the old way, what we might call the old way, but it's not old. So if that's the case, then lowering fossil fuels is not a disaster, that it might be in many ways a return to, it could be, there could be a lot of advantages to it. 
And if that's the case, then lowering pollution, lowering fossil fuel, lowering things that cause pollution would be advantageous right off the bat, not something to be avoided at all, at all costs. I just, until recently, I never thought twice about it. And now I'm trying to find out to what extent, I don't want to paint too rosy a picture, but is it not that big of a risk to not have all the sources of power that we can get from burning fossil fuels? That not being, I'm not just talking about climate change, but also like displacing people from, from their land to get to the oil and all the endocrine disruption that we're getting from the plastics and all these environmental issues. Yeah. I mean, these, these are kind of tough issues. You know, I think that return to kind of more traditional ways of living, I almost feel like you have to hit crisis of some sorts before that kind of opens up as a possibility. Otherwise, like the Chimani will say, if I when I start talking bad about like, oh, the harms and dangers of civilization and resource exploitation and all this stuff, they're like, you guys had your opportunity to fuck things up. So why why are you trying to deny it to us? Like, who are you to say better, right? Then we want these same things that you all had. And this is the main issue, right? When people talk about development and improving well-being, and I guess where I thought you were going to go initially about life expectancy, that if everyone is living till later ages, that's a great thing, right, in terms of kind of global well-being. But imagine the environmental footprint that that, that that creates. But at the same time, how could you ever deny anything that's going to improve survivorship in populations around the world? It would be very rude to say, look, we have high life expectancy and a high cost of living or a certain expectation for how we live, but we want to make sure that around the world that everyone is having a much smaller kind of carbon footprint. Those kinds of conversations are really difficult unless I think people do, which I saw on looking through some of your uh, TED Talks and whatnot, unless people start doing what you're doing. Otherwise, we're all hypocrites, right? That we can't tell other people how to live unless we're going to choose to live that way ourselves or, or show by example that one can live more cheaply uh, or more sustainably uh, without sacrificing the quality of life that we somehow believe is going to happen. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. Please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.